It's our Understanding Statistics episode. We'll talk about the differences between automated projections and manual ones. We'll go through the numerical ranges of typical player statistics. We'll discuss X-Stats, StatCast, saves, and much, much more. It's a number-filled episode, and Mike Podhorzer of Rotographs joins this week's show to discuss. Beat the Shift is next. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Welcome back, Ruvain. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, I know you were uh, working on, you had uh, your son's uh, bar mitzvah last week, and uh, a mazel tov to you. Thank you, thank you. It was a, a lot of work and a lot of, a lot of stress, but we got through it. Yeah, I can imagine. Good success here, and we're now ready to tackle the 2022 baseball season starting here in December. And uh, when when I went to uh, Arizona with you, uh, Ruvain, there was a couple people who were you know, talking about the podcast and said, you know, we love stats, but we just don't understand some of them. And even for the simple ones like OBP, what's a good OBP? What's a bad OBP? So we thought we'd do one episode before the season started, talking about understanding statistics. And I thought of nobody else better than Mike Podhorzer to come on the show. Mike uh, works uh, at Rotographs. He's a writer there, two-time Tout Wars winner. He was the 2015 FSWA Baseball Writer of the Year, and he literally works a block away from me in Manhattan. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, so excited to be here. And I'm excited to talk about bar mitzvahs because I have to tell you, I really miss those things back in the day. Yeah. Oh, man. It's been, it's been a while for you, right? You're older than 13, right? I'm older than 13. And, Ruvain, I actually have a question for you because sure. back in our time, the biggest and most popular and most exciting game was Coke and Pepsi. Because, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Coke and Pepsi because it was like, ooh, who do I choose as a partner? Is it the cute girl or my best guy friend? <laughs> was that played at the bar mitzvah? Actually, it wasn't, but there was Coke and Pepsi on the table, though. So <laughs> for, eh, for, I don't think that counts. Well, for, for those who don't know what uh, Mike is talking about, there, there was this game where you would, have, you would take a partner, and everybody would line up on one side of the floor, and it, one side would be the Coke side, one side would be the, uh, pep, the uh, Pepsi side, and you know, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, you would line up opposite your partner the, across the whole thing, and if— the uh, person, the host who's running it says Coke, everybody would run to one side, and the last one is out. If you said Pepsi, everyone would run to the other side. If you said, I think it was Dr. Pepper, you had to go in the middle and lock arms. Seven up. up, Whatever it was. Or Sprite, or or then you'd make up a a couple of special words for the bar mitzvah boy, and you'll have all kinds (laughs) of fun. Ah, wow, you're taking me back, Mike, really. (laughs) Memories. How's your microphone doing today? Oh, my gosh. Let's not talk about my microphone. <laughs> uh, well, good. Uh, side joke. Anyways, uh, uh, but today is uh, the Understanding Statistics episode. And, you know, before we talk about the actual statistics, I want to talk a little bit about projections. And Mike does the pod projections every year. Um, you know, projections in general always rely on historical stats. 
Um, you know, you take some kind of weighted average of the last three. Any good projection does these three things. It does weighting of past years. There's some sort of aging curve, and there's always regression to the mean. H- how, do, how are those three principles applied to the pod projections, and what do you do differently than everybody else, and maybe what's new for uh, 2022 for you? So the projection systems that most people are familiar with, you have Steamer, you have Zips, you have the bat from Derek Cardi. So all of these are computer projection systems where they're almost literally pressing a button and within an hour, however long the computer takes, outspits all your projections. Man, would I love to be able to do that. But I don't do it that way because I have no idea how to create a computer projection model. I'm literally going player by player, manually projecting all of the metrics and therefore I don't do it the same way as the computers. So the computers are for anything in life. A lot of times you hear, Oh, this is art and not science, or this is mostly science and a little bit of art projections from a computer are all science because none of the developers of these systems, Derek Hardy isn't going into one of his bat projections and saying, eh, I think Juan Soto is going to hit a couple of more home runs than the bat is projecting. That's not what he does. It's 100% science based on all of his formulas, and everybody gets treated the, the same way based on whatever formulas and equations and regressions that he has uh, added into his system. Me, on the other hand, there's more art to it because... I follow injury reports. I follow changes in a pitcher's pitch mix and repertoire and velocity. And those are the type of of things that I could adjust in my projections that these computer models are unable to do. So it's that extra bit of art that me being a human and not a computer is able to actually uh, account for in my projections. And while that doesn't mean that my projections are automatically the best, it does give me uh, an edge uh, on certain players as a result. Are you are you weighing differently the 2020 season when it comes to putting like a three-year projection type thing together? All right, that's a good question. So, Ariel, you mentioned the three-year weighted average. Um, it really depends on the metric. So I don't have any blanket methodology in terms of how I project a specific metric. It depends on that specific metric and what I'm looking at. Sometimes I throw out a year. Sometimes I'll include four years. Sometimes I'll include a a complete average of the last three years. It really depends at what I'm looking at, their age, what team they were on, and some of the underlying drivers of whatever metric I'm looking at. And maybe last year there's a clear fluke in one of the the metrics that's driving some other metric. Let's call it BABIP or, or, or something. And I am then able to determine which is a fluke and kind of ignore that. And so maybe I'll weigh that year less. And that's only for that particular player. So there's no blanket methodology that I will use for every single player. Okay. You know, the, the benefit to using projections, the automated ones at least in general, are that, you know, it's hard for me to say I, I know more than, than the computer model. You know, the computer model set up that, you know, six out of ten times they're going to get it right over the human element, right? I mean, the point of, of regression is that, hey, you know, 
a player cannot continue an outside performance for a very long time. You, you, you bet the average, you bet the regression to the mean, and on the whole, that would do better. However, there are some instances where your gut should be trusted over the, over the projection, over the automatic projection. I mean, one such thing, of course, is playing time. Right where you know you might have more information about the team, whereas the other person doesn't. Maybe injuries. Maybe the projection system isn't taking into account injuries. Maybe there was a single year, maybe one year ago, a player was injured. But if you just use the automated weighting of, of past history, it would not correctly compensate for the fact that that player was not at the right level that year. Um, what are some of the other instances in your mind where manual projections are better than automated projections? And, um, you know, what what are you specifically looking at to give you that advantage over the computer? Uh, so a lot of times there are it's, it's the Jose Bautista, J.D. Martinez. Let's take those two as examples. So back in the day, let's go way back. Jose Bautista was not much of a fantasy asset. Nobody was very excited to roster Bautista. Then all of a sudden he had that massive breakout year. And you went back, and sure enough, there were stories before that year on how he changed his batting stance. He he added, a, I believe it was like a, a leg kick, and and that is what led to that big year. And then he became a consistently strong hitter. And so when you have an explanation behind uh, a surge in performance, and the same thing goes for J.D. Martinez, he changed his swing, and you had that uh, explosion in his performance— when you have that explanation, the projection systems, all they see is a major breakout that suddenly came. And while they are weighting that because that's the most recent year, they're also heavily weighting previous years of much poorer performance. But when I'm looking at these articles of the changes being made and that drove the new performance, I'm then able to weigh the most recent year because that was driven by a specific change. I can weigh that much more heavily than the computer systems. And so that means that I'm going to be more bullish on these players and the computers are going to miss out on them. Right, right. No, and that's a good point that, you know, there's always, you know, just take the example of weighting. You know, if you do 60, 30, 10 as the percentages for most recent, next most recent, that's a good base case. But of course, for each individual player, there might be a better one that, that takes into account the skills correctly. Ruvain, are, are there any other blind spots of, of projections in general that, that you have found? Um, not not so much, but when you mentioned about using your gut, if you see, if you see two projections for two separate players and they're very similar, which one do you go, do you go for? I mean, because it is just a computer spitting out numbers, and you're seeing these numbers, and they're similar, and it's, just, and it's telling you it's the same player – which player do you end up choosing? And that's when you have to use your gut. And and I know you you Ariel, you hate it when I mentioned this before, but when you use your gut, sometimes you'll find that breakout player just because you're taking a chance on something. I mean, what's the what's the difference between a red apple and a red apple? They look exactly the same thing, but one may have a worm in it, and one may be the juiciest apple out there. You don't know until you actually see. See, the thing with using your gut is that although you might be telling yourself that you're using your gut you're still using either data, scouting, or a combination of both, even if you're not realizing that you are. Because you're making a decision based on two different players that look to be the same, and then when you say, oh, well, my gut is telling me this one is gonna be better, there is a reason inside of your head that you're choosing player B rather than player A, and 
that's not your gut saying it. That's a, a reason that you can point to, even if it's kind of like a subconscious reason that you that that's making you move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the gut here is, I guess, based on actual fact. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, we, we tell our listeners on the show that you know. Not everybody has the time to go through player by player like Mike and has the technical savvy to know how to weight the different years and to recognize, you know, which year is more credible than the others. So, you know, we suggest using ATC projections, which is a good base because ATC does incorporate some manual systems as well. It incorporates all the automated ones and the difference of opinion. And, uh, you know, going with an aggregate is usually better. Um, But question to you, Mike, you know, in terms of relying on projections during the season, Right when the season starts, even if you're two weeks in, you go by projections, right? You're not going to say, oh, the first two weeks a guy you know, hit 10 homers, uh, this guy is a new level. You assume that he's going to regress back to the projection level. But at some point later in the season, maybe towards the end, you know that the projections from the beginning of the season, they're probably almost meaningless, and the, so f- the year-to-date stats are far more reliable as predicting what's going to happen for the rest of the season. At what point do you think is the switch where you think that you're gonna you're relying much less on projections from preseason and much more on what's going on year to date? I honestly don't think that that switch really happens as early as most people think. Every study that I've read that has compared the overperformers and let's call it WOBA uh, through maybe the All Star break compared to projection. All of, all of those studies have proven that those overperformers and the underperformers then move in the opposite direction, coming closer to their preseason projection over the rest of the year. So, on average, all players are going to move toward their projection. However, that's on average, and that doesn't really help the typical fantasy player because we're talking about specific players and we don't own the entire league. So, what you really want to do is dive deep into the metrics, read the storylines, a change in batting stance, a a change in pitch repertoire, uh, increased uh, fastball velocity, uh, a decline in velocity, and try to explain why a performance is much better or much worse than was expected. If you can't explain it, then more often than not, that player is going to move back to where we expected him to be. Uh, If there looks to be a logical explanation, then absolutely I would start heavily weighing what's happened so far and feeling like while the player might not totally keep it up, he'll probably keep up most of his gains and finish closer to what he's been doing than what he was originally projected for. Anything to add, Ruve? Yeah, I actually think for hitters and starting pitchers, it's probably around a month time that you get to start stop using the, the projections because usually at a month, the hitters have about 100 at-bats under their belt. The pit, starting pitchers have about five starts, and you start to begin to see a trend as to whether or not they're going to get close to their projections or not. Middle relievers, I think you have to wait about two months because you don't know their full role yet. They always change up, and, and they always work on things in the first month or two of the season. So I think there is a cutoff point, and I think you should really— st- I mean, if people start making trades based on projections two months into the season— you know, people in the league are going to be up in arms saying, why are you doing this? This is based on projections. It's not based on what we're seeing already. So, you know, I do think that there is a there is a cutoff, and especially if you can do trades, there has to be cutoff. I disagree with a lot of that. I think that I'm closer to Mike in that I think that, especially for hitters, um, I use the preseason projections 
for the whole first half of the season, I'd say somewhere in August I make the switch off where I say, okay, I'm going to disregard projections that I created early in the season and look at more at in-season. I think that it's over the summer, over the late summer, somewhere in August is where it really it really works for, for hitters. Pitchers, especially relief pitchers, I do switch earlier. I think that when a pitcher establishes, let's say, um, a very different K-BB percentage early on, I think it's a good sign the pitcher has changed. That stabilizes quicker than some of the hitting statistics. So I think that for projections, maybe for pitchers, I rely for the first two months, and then I'm pretty much switching over to in-season rates. And on the pitching side, uh, I think it's easier to identify what could be driving a change because you can quickly check fastball velocity, pitch mix changes, and there are fewer of those types of metrics that you can look at for hitters that can really scream out to you, there is a legit change. Right, right. Correct. So, correct. so then, I, then I have a question. Then we, let's say you use Francisco Lindor last year as as an example. If you projected him to bat, let's say two sixty, two fifty, two sixty, and hit about thirty, let's say twenty five to thirty home runs, and he's and it's mid June and he's batting under two hundred, you're still telling me you're going to go by the projections that were done beginning of the season? You see, it's not the same player. You see, there's something different. So I'm going to jump in here, and Lindor is a good example of. When I, so, so one of the issues with Lindor is that a lot of his value was made up from stolen bases. And stolen bases is part team philosophy and part player. And so I was actually hesitant on Lindor specifically because even if he rebounded offensively, which I was confident he would, I wasn't as sure that the steals would rebound. And you needed those steals to rebound for Lindor to earn his value. And so when you take a guy like that, then it's a bit riskier. If you take a guy that is more power-oriented when you're just betting that the power rebounds and you're not hoping that the team philosophy doesn't hold him back, then I think that's a better player to bet on returning the expected uh, fantasy value from the preseason. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, yeah, it all depends. It also depends what the cause of it is. You know, if you look at the BABIP and you see – it's a really unlucky Babbitt. Well, that could be the cause, right? It, it, it's really, it's more case specific. Um, I'm talking as a general rule. You know, it, it, it's always good to make a generalization, but of course, when you get down to it, you know, different things for different players are the reason. Um, all right, want to get into the the statistics dis, statistics discussion, I should say. Um, just to throw out there the main statistics. Maybe, Mike, you can talk about what a typical range for the players would be, what a really good value would be, and what a poor value would be. Let's start with hitters, and we're going really basic to start, but how about, how about batting average? So back in our day, it used to be you wanted a 300 hitter, and the, the goal, 300, 30 home runs, 100 RBIs. Now, we don't care right now about home runs and RBIs, but it was that nice round 300. There was no real math, no real reason that 300 was what you wanted to see. It was only because it was a nice round number, and that was the plateau you wanted to see your hitter reach. That's clearly no longer the case because batting averages keep declining, and the league average batting average was only 244 in this season. So a 300 average nowadays is actually really good. And for fantasy purposes, if you can get a guy batting even 280, then he's 
most certainly going to be helping your fantasy team. So you don't get as many 300 hitters anymore. I think 280 and above is perfectly fine. Uh, and then you still got those guys hitting 210, 220. And if you do have one of those on your team, they better be hitting 40 home runs. Now, you mentioned that the league batting average was 244, although uh, that's not going to be the average in a rotisserie league because you're picking more elite players. You think the uh, average has got to be pumped up a little bit more? Yeah. 250, 255 for the yes, average. Yes, right? a, a bit, absolutely, a bit higher uh, in yeah. in fantasy leagues for sure because you're not drafting your your uh, your your fourth and fifth bench guys that barely right. play and, and are more there for defensive purposes. But it it still is the case that... I would imagine, in general, fantasy league batting averages have come down along with the league-wide batting average. Right. Let's do OBP and slugging. What are uh, the general ranges, and what are really good numbers for those? Yeah, so again, on-base percentage is driven by batting average and walks. And walk rate spiked in 2020. I I don't know why. It's kind of odd, but it did. And it went right back to where it had been previously this year. And so... OBP has dropped along with batting average. Uh, last year, or, or uh, this season, was uh, 317 league on base percentage. Um, if you're talking fantasy league and uh, a player, you probably want at least a 330 mark. Uh, the elite guys are at 400 and above. Um, Barry Bonds, for those listeners that are old enough to remember him, he was an absolute monster, and his on base percentages. We're over 500 several seasons, which is just insane to wrap your head around. Uh, nowadays, it's Juan Soto, it's Bryce Harper, it's Mike Trout. Their OBPs are consistently over 400, and their value skyrockets in leagues that count OBP instead of batting average, in that all three of those guys uh, are so far above everybody else because of that huge OBP advantage. Right, and Sluggy? Slugging is also on the downtrend, which is kind of surprising given the increase in home runs. But again, slugging is going to account for singles because singles is one base, so that is part of it. So if batting average is declining, it will be bringing down slugging. So league average slugging, 411. Again, in the good old glory days, it used to be a 500 slugging percentage. But given that the league average has been declining, then I would say... 460, 480 uh, is good enough, but what really is more important than slugging itself is ISO, which is short for isolated slugging, and that's simply slugging minus batting average, and that's really looking at your extra base power. So if you're looking at a guy that has a slugging percentage of 450, but he's hitting 350 in terms of batting average, then he really isn't showing much power as opposed to the guy who's batting 200 with a 450 slugging. That guy has way more power, but you wouldn't realize that if you only were looking at slugging percentage. Right. And, of course, OPS is just on-base plus slugging. The league average was 728. Um, if you're getting an OPS of, you know, let's say 800, you're doing really, really great. Um, and below, like, 650 is is the pits here. Um just a question about, you know, these rate stats, batting average OBP. How skewed are they versus, like, home runs? Meaning, um, you know, if you're at 300 and there's not that many people with a batting average over 300, how elite is that versus the elite homer people? Meaning, how important is it to get that elite 
elite batting average in a fantasy league versus the power. So I guess maybe you're combining bell curve and counting stats versus ratio stats. The thing with counting stats versus ratio is counting stats you can always trade for and add to your total. Ratios, the more at-bats and the more innings pitch you get, the harder and harder it is to move in that category. So I think it's really important to build an early foundation in that. Whereas home runs, you could be in sixth place at the All-Star break. All you need to do is trade a pitcher, trade stolen bases for a a power guy, and you're going to move up several places in, in home runs. Whereas it's much more difficult to trade for ratios just because it, it fluctuates so much and you, you might think that you're trading for a good batting average guy and they just get unlucky on the bad bit and they end up batting only 250 the rest of the way so it's a lot harder to move from a, a low batting average or obp over the rest of the year so i think it's important to start off strong in those categories i would say though that um for the ratio stats for the pitchers though it's easier to move I mean, you could have a couple of really crappy outings. And, and you drop, run. yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this is true because innings are much less than at-bats. Uh, it's also, I think, easier to drop a bad pitcher, whereas there's nobody batting 150 on your team, uh, unless your name is Chris Davis for the Orioles. Um, and it's easier to just drop the the guy who has disappointed to a 5 ERA with uh, poor supporting uh, metrics and you can drop him and all of a sudden your team is better having dropped a guy and, and that's not as easy to do on the offensive side let's talk about some ratios here uh how about walk rate strikeout rate what would be an average rate what would be a really good strikeout rate and walk rate for a hitter so walk rate has been aside from 2020 it's been pretty stable in the mid eight percent range uh, I generally like to see my guy that I'm looking at walk in a du- double-digit clip, so 10% and above. And you'll see the elite guys, the Joey Vados, the Sotos, the uh, the Mike Trouts, they're up between 15 and 20%. Um, it's rare that a hitter is going to walk over 20% of the time. And then, of course, there are those guys who sometimes bafflingly if that's even a word sometimes they're at leadoff because they're fast and you have the old school managers they come around with like a three percent walk rate with like a 290 obp and the problem with that is you might think oh my league doesn't use obp so i don't care but you do care because a low walk rate means they're getting on base less which means fewer runs scored opportunities and fewer opportunities to steal bases so if anybody tells you that walk rate doesn't matter unless you're in an OBP league, they're wrong. Okay, moving along to strikeout rate. So that, you probably, listeners, you probably are well aware that strikeout rate has been rising and rising and rising and rising. Um, it looked like it peaked in 2020. Of course, 2020 was a weird short season, so who knows where it would have ended up over a full season. But in 2021, it was at 23.2%. And this is just much higher than it's ever been in the past. And so now a guy in the mid-20s is really not a big deal. Uh, Once you get to 30%, then it starts getting worrisome. And if you're at 30% or higher, you need to be hitting 30-plus home runs. Uh, Otherwise, you are going to be batting like 200, and you're going to risk getting benched, and you're going to be hurting fantasy teams. 
Uh, I also like finding the guys who are striking out at like a mid-teen rate or below. And I get even more excited about the guys who are only striking out 15% of the time that also have power. Because putting the ball in play that much more often, obviously that's more opportunity to hit home runs. And then you end up with your elite Juan Sotos, who I keep bringing up because his skill set is just so good. Right. Yeah, 50, the, that, that mid-teens for strikeouts is key because you know that, that strikeout rate really translates to the other statistics. If you're putting the ball in play and you're not striking out, I mean, the the law of averages say that they're gonna it's gonna find holes, right? You, you're gonna your batting average will easily be higher if if you have a player that has a low strikeout rate, you, you're guaranteed for him to to be pretty good in, in batting average, or at least have have a a low uh, have a high floor in in batting average, I should say. How do these how do these rates compare from this 2021 compared to 2019? Because I know they supposedly they changed the ball. I mean, 2020 was a short shortened season, but from from a full year to the full year, did you see a major change? And did you think that, that the changing of a ball, like let's say if they go back to the ball from 2019, do you think that it's going to make a change in all these statistics? Absolutely. So what we see here is home run per fly ball, and I don't have ISO up, but I would imagine that ISO is down as well because it's it's driven obviously by home runs home run per fly ball peaked uh, i believe this was a historical high in 2019 of 15.3 percent in 2021 this dropped to 13.6 percent which is a substantial drop in from one year to the next and that was likely all due to the ball uh, we also see a drop in Babbitt, but I'm not sure how much of that is ball-related and how much of that is something else. But it definitely decreased power, and I, I think that's exactly what baseball was going for. Yeah. Homer to fly ball rate is important because, you know, players tend to have or tend to trend towards some kind of ratio between their ground balls, fly balls, and line drives. So if a player is hitting 30% of his balls in the air, you want that homer to fly ball ratio to be higher. So it's it's a good component breakout of everything. And then we come to barrel rate. Could you Mike, could you explain what a barrel is and what a barrel rate is and why it might be important? Yeah, so barrel rate is one of the many metrics that the Statcast team had developed. And essentially it is the ideal combination of launch angle and exit velocity that produces a an elite result and i can't remember off the top of my head what that result is it, it's possible it was like in a thousand ops or or some really good result that they considered the ideal result and it's this perfect combination of ev and la which is exit velocity and launch angle that will produce that elite level of performance and so you get a range of exit velocities and launch angles so Basically, it would be like a matrix. So the ideal launch angle given a particular exit velocity would be this, and that's what would produce a barrel. So barrel percentage is out of all your batted balls, how many of those were labeled as a barrel with that perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. Now, I, I wanted to just caution all our listeners that I see barrel percentage misused a lot. The problem here is that barrel percentage uses all batted balls as the denominator, which is fine if you understand that, but what ends up happening 
is you can't hit a barrel on a ground ball. All ground balls, they're not none of them are barrels. They they can't be barrels because of the requirements for that EV LA combination. So when I run my proprietary expected metrics, I only look at barrels per fly ball or even barrels per line drive because those are the only two batted ball types that could even be a barrel. So why even include ground balls? That ends up hurting ground ball heavy hitters, and then you're double counting their ground ball percentage. Right. No, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, the average barrel rate this year was about 8%. Uh, barrel per ba- barrel event, at least how they defined it. Uh, anything over 10, 12% is really, really good. Um, now, before I talk about anything else, the question I have to you, Mike, and this is actually a very important one, is how do you know if you see a, a player's barrel rate jump up in a year, how can you tell whether it's skill? Oh, look, his barrel rate is up. That means that it looks like he's figured out how to, I don't know, maybe the launch angle or he's changed his skill. Or, well, it, it doesn't, if you have a very uh, unusual barrel rate that's high, well, that's an outlier, folks. He can't be that good, right? We, we come up with this all the time where we're doing analysis and, and we're saying, oh, look, it's gone, gotten better. And on one hand, you can say, well, that means he's better. And the other hand, you can say, well, that was a fluke. Like, How can you distinguish for strikeout rate, for barrel rate, for homer to fly ball, or any of these statistics that, no, guys, this is for real and it's trending upward versus – hey, that was a fluke, it has to come back down to earth, so don't have that great an expectation. So I'm going to give an answer that won't be very popular, and that is, we don't know. We there, There's no possible way to be certain that barrel rate or, or any metric that we're looking at that just came out off of a breakout year, we don't know for sure if any of them are for real or if it's a fluke. But we can take an educated guess, and for barrel rate, I think the first step is to do what I just said and break out barrel percentage by batted ball type. Remove all ground balls, take apart barrel percentage, look at barrel per fly ball, barrel per line drive, compare it to previous years. You might realize that the barrel rate is increased only on line drives, and then at least you know it's only a specific batted ball type, and then you can dive in from there. Or maybe you realize that the batter is actually hitting far more fly balls than he ever has. And what I said before, you can't hit a barrel on a ground ball. So if you're hitting fewer barrels and you're giving yourself more of a chance to hit a barrel given your batted ball type distribution, then your barrel percentage probably is going to go up. Even if you're not hitting a higher rate of barrels per fly ball, you're simply hitting more fly balls. So these are the types of things that you need to do when looking at these metrics is break it apart and figure out what's driving the metric and then try to understand from there, well, why is he hitting a higher rate of barrels per fly ball? Did he pull a Jose Bautista? Was there anything that he changed about his swing that you can find? If not, then, you know, it's really anyone's guess if he's going to be able to keep it up. Yeah, I mean, I'll say a few things. Uh, First of all, you're right in that, you know, you can always drill down into further components to verify something. You know, even for, like, walk rate or strikeout rate, I like to drill down because I do the WPDI and MPDI statistics where we're looking at what players and pitchers do on a per-pitch basis. Well, are... You know, is the batter swinging more out of the zone? Is he swinging more in the zone? If you break it down further, you might say, okay, he's striking out more because he's swinging more outside the zone. 
and that might be true, and then you'll know it's for real versus, well, there's nothing underlying supporting it. Maybe it was fluky, right? So drilling down the component the component level is one way to do it. I'll also say that trends help. If you see a homer-to-fly ball rate going up steadily for three years in a row, uh, I think that's a trend in skill. I wouldn't say, well, the last year is the highest, so it's the outlier. I could say it's a trend. It also depends on, on, on the um, – how much the the outsized year is. If the homer to fly ball rate is 15, 15, and all of a sudden it's 45, well, I mean, triple, that sounds like a ridiculous number. Whereas if it was 15, 15, and 22, okay, you know, maybe there is a little bit to his new level. So it depends on the size and magnitude of the offset. Anything to add, Ruvain? No, what I what I would say is that everyone who doesn't know what these what these numbers are should go back and listen to all this again and write down these numbers because when it comes to the end of the draft and you're looking for these players, sometimes you find these hidden gems by knowing these statistics. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about luck statistics. And for hitters, one of the luck statistics are BABIP. Mike, could you just briefly briefly explain what BABIP is? What would be an average BABIP and how you might use it to identify a player that has been lucky and maybe won't be as lucky going forward? So BABIP is the acronym for batting average on balls in play. And I have to tell you, my lo- uh, my wife loves BABIP because it sounds hilarious, and I agree. And it's not as much of a luck metric as it is for pitchers because hitters actually exhibit far more control over their own BABIPs. So you want to say that a hitter tends to regress toward their own career average but of course if you have a young guy or a rookie they don't have a career average so you have to kind of use minor league stats and translate those those it gets a little tougher but on the whole yes hitters will tend to regress toward the average which this year was 292 and just like some of the other metrics this has been declining and this is one of the reasons why batting average has been declining Uh, one of the reasons that BABIP has declined is shifting. Um, Shifting is something that has really gained popularity within uh, defenses, and uh, it's been a little while now, I would say over the last decade or so, and we've seen BABIPs go up and down, and so we can't be 100% sure for any particular team that the shifting is really decreasing BABIP, but it's certainly having an effect and it's having it's had an effect a great effect on a lot of specific hitters so shifts are something to definitely be aware of Uh, in terms of looking for guys that have been lucky and not lucky uh, I have my own proprietary ex-BABIP metric and I I basically I build upon StatCast's ex-batting average metric and while it's not BABIP you could assume that the discrepancy between X batting average and actual bat- batting average is because of BABIP and StatCast is thinking that the hitter deserves a higher BABIP or a lower BABIP than it's actually posted. The flaws in StatCast is it doesn't account for shifts and it doesn't account for the horizontal angle of the ball, as in was the ball pulled, was the ball pushed to the opposite way, and these things matter. And, and so my ex-BABIP equation attempts to uh, account for these that are missing, and that does a better job of actually correlating with uh, prior season BABIP. You know, talking about StatCast, 
talking about exit velocity, launch angle. How how should one incorporate some of those stack cast measures into predicting of players going to be good? Oh my god, that guy is ninety fifth percent sprint speed. So does that mean he's going to have more stolen bases? Like how would you use the how would you use the stack cast measures to really identify pockets of value? Yeah, so the stack cast metrics are fantastic because we have a, a whole new variety of quantitative numbers that we don't have to rely anymore on, oh, this guy looks fast. We now have a number to put on the guy. So we now know for sure this guy's fast. Or, oh, he swings hard. Well, now we know exactly how hard he swings and we know exactly how fast the ball is coming off of his bat because we have exit velocity. So it's fantastic now to put a number to the words we've used in the past and the things that we've seen with our own eyes. And it's helped us develop new metrics. Uh, I use a lot of the metrics in my X equations, and I use that to feed into my projections. And so all that data is really important. And it, we didn't have that like eight years ago. So it's super helpful, but it's very important also not to misuse the data and interpret it in a way that isn't right. Like bar- barrel percentage, for example, uh, is a good one where just because you're seeing a higher percentage or a lower percentage doesn't necessarily mean that they are hitting for more or less power. So definitely include it in your analysis, but ensure you're using it correctly. Right. I'm going to go to Ruvain first on this one. In terms of statistics, on the hitting side we're talking, what is the best in-season stat to look at, to sort at, when you're making waiver wire bids? Because everybody who does fab... You go to free agents, and, well, unless you've heard the news of this guy was really good this week, you want to sort on something. You want to take the last 15 days, year to date, but you're sorting, sorting on both homers, maybe sorting on at-bats. What, what are the couple of stats that you look at and sort on or really take note of when looking for waiver wire picks midseason? Well, first of all, I definitely look at the Babbitt because I want to see whether or not how lucky the player's being. Meaning, if, if you see a player who's, who's on the waiver and he's very hot and he's, he's getting on base all this all a lot, and his Babbitt is very hard during the course of the last two or three weeks, let's say his Babbitt is close to 400, that's not going to last. You want to find someone that is doing something more consistently. So I look for a, I look for a high Babbitt as a warning sign saying that there is going to be a crash and you have to watch out for that. But I think the main thing that people should look for is playing time. Um, all these statistics are great, but if you can't play, if you're not on the field, you're not going to get any of these statistics. So I think the best number when you're looking the waiver wire, for me, is still going to be playing time. These other statistics are great. You're looking for everything. Babbitt can be a a white lie, meaning you can say he's, this is stuff is you're gonna he's getting on base, he's doing all these great things, but his Babbitt is 450. That's not going to last. That's not something that's not, as 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 you mentioned. It doesn't. It's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. So. That can be something you have to be watching out for, especially if you're going in the waiver wire. You want to get that hot hitter. If the BABIP is just so high, I'm just a little nervous about that. Mike, what about you? What are your go-to metrics in season for FAB? You know, Ravain, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, I couldn't care less what a hitter has done over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it has no predictive value. It doesn't matter to me. All I care about is playing time and role changes. And I'll give you guys a, a player that represents a perfect example. So last year, a guy who started leading off for the Cubs and playing every day, who nobody knew about, he, he just came out of nowhere. He, you know, a journeyman, 
already 30 years old, and that's Rafael Ortega. In half a season of plate appearances, he hit 11 home runs, <clears throat> stole 12 bases, and batted 291. And that has value in all leagues. And there's nothing that you could have really looked at when he first came up and started playing every day that would have been like, oh, he's for real. Instead, you look at the last seven days, the last two weeks, and you're like, oh, he's played a lot. He's, out of all my free agent outfielders, he's near the top in playing time. You then look at his minor league track record. You see a history of some power, good speed. He's playing every day, batting leadoff for a rebuilding team. You jump on him, not because he's hit well the last week or two, but because he's playing every day. He's got a history of success in the minors, and these are the types of under-the-radar guys that can give you quick lifts that most people aren't paying attention to. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I will agree completely because, um, I mean, take another guy. How about Frank Schwindel? Um, wow, that guy was hot one week. That guy was hot two weeks. If you didn't press your button and say pick him up, you probably lost out on the best free agent on the waiver wire in the last in, in the last half of 2021. Um, I I really think that you know playing the hot in baseball people are streaky, especially especially hitters. Um, so I wouldn't discount you know hotness in the last seven days. But to your point, yes. Don't always just go by, has he been great in the last seven days? However, at-bats, again, track the last seven or 14 days of at-bats. Who's playing more? I like to look at, actually, uh, batting order. I want to see who, avail- who available is, you know, is batting leadoff, batting second. They'll get more opportunities in the coming days, you know, not just somebody who's batting eighth. Uh, and I-, I like runs scored. You know, tell me who's, who's getting on base and scoring. Runs really test whether the team is knocking him in behind him. It tests whether they're getting on base. I mean, we know that in a 5 by 5 rotisserie league, the category that's highest, that's most correlated to the team that wins is run scored. So why not look for run scored on the waiver wire? Those are my go-tos, I think, for uh But, for but you mentioned Frank Schwindel. He would not have gotten his chance if he wasn't, if Anthony Rizzo wasn't traded, if he didn't get to play for his base. So again, it, it comes down to playing time with him, doesn't it? Um, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, you, you would have searched for him on playing time. Um, but, of course, if you, you would have searched who hit six homers this week and his name popped up, I wouldn't glance over it and say, well, it's a fluke. You know, in this day and age, you might have to take a chance on him. Uh, remember, you can always pick up somebody and not play them. You know, the, the cost for picking up somebody marginally and not playing is not that high. It's probably worth taking that chance for somebody who's performing. And, of course, I wouldn't take it in a vacuum, but it's one of the ingredients I would consider. Let's move over to pitching now, all right? ERA, whip. Mike, what are the – I guess it, it, it's hard to talk about for the league. Maybe it's, it's more worth it to talk about what a good ERA is for a fantasy team. And the same thing for whip, I would say. Yeah, I mean, still, for all my years playing fantasy baseball – it's still the four ERA is is the max. I, I don't want to be drafting a guy who is projected for a four ERA, who has a good chance of a four plus ERA. I want a guy who's going to give me a, a three and a half ERA. And of course, that's harder said than done because the league average ERA is always over four. So you're not going to be able to fill your entire roster with guys with an under-4 ERA, especially because every year there are always disappointments who 
you thought he was going to give you a 330 ERA, and here he is with a 460 ERA. So 4 ERA is still that ceiling where I try, I hope, that all of my starting pitchers finish the year below that mark. All right, how about Whip? Whip is... That's tough. I, I don't generally look at Whip because I think Whip is the... It's driven by other things that I look at. So kind of as a side effect, the whip will just happen because I generally prefer high strikeout guys. And if you're striking out guys, then balls aren't being put into play, which means fewer hits. And generally that means a, a 120-125 whip max, but it's not a hard and fast rule because guys like Robbie Ray before this year high strikeout, but also high walk guys. I'm fine rostering them, but he's going to give you a 130 whip because he walks a lot of guys. And I'm fine with that if it comes with a boatload of strikeouts. So it really depends on the type of pitcher that I'm rostering, um, whether the whip is acceptable. Would you, I, I actually have a question in one second. Um, would you weight the ERA and whip from 2020 at a higher level because there may be a DH, a universal DH next year. And in 2020, we had the universal DH. And if we're going to be switching back to it, shouldn't those numbers have a little bit more weight to it when uh, doing so projections? No. First of all, 2020 was such a wacky year. It was a tiny sample size. So any ratio stats like ERA and WHIP were not very meaningful. Um, but also, I don't, and I don't think any of the projection systems directly project ERA and WHIP. Uh, I'm not going into, uh, I don't know why Zach Granke's name was the first that popped into my head, but I'm not going into Zach Granke's projection and saying, oh, I think he's going to post a 417 ERA. Instead, I'm projecting all of the underlying metrics, the strikeout rate, the walk rate, the ground ball rate, the BABIP, the home run per fly ball ratio, and then all the math then calculates what the ERA is projected to be based on those underlying metrics. So the 2020 season has no bearing whatsoever. However, if the DH is implemented, then strikeouts will be lower than they would have been expected. Walk rate would be higher, BABIP higher, home and fly ball allowed would be higher as well. So yes, ERA and whip projections would be a bit higher with the DH. And and the real way to do it actually is not to say count or discount a certain year more. The real way to do it is you actually normalize to a base rate. You know, the AL and NL are obviously different environments. If a pitcher goes over to the NL, do you say, well, the heck with all the statistics from the AL? No. What you do is you normalize it and you say, what would it be in a in a league neutral uh, uh, in a league neutral value, or if you're really sophisticated, you do by park. What if your home park was City Field versus Colorado, and you know you would first normalize it to a normal level of a uh, park factor of you know 100, and then whatever team they're going to, you apply the park factor, right? You would de denormalize, and you would then go back up to the next environment. And if next year there's a DH, well, that's a different environment. You hit everybody with a certain factor. That's really the way to to do it if you're projecting. Yes, to... that's definitely the super automated computer model way to do it. <laughs> that's definitely the correct way to do it. But to be honest, I don't I don't think the computer models go that far anyway because I don't think that we have enough data to even be able to 
correctly compute the park factors. I still haven't seen a park factor that correctly computed everything, and park factors affect every pitcher and hitter differently anyway, and so you you would really need individual player park factors, and they don't exist. Most models do use park factors for players, even if it's a generalized, exactly, a generalized team factor, which isn't perfectly accurate. I, I, I know Derek Cardi does it by matchup by matchup. You know, he takes into account, you know, weather in Los Angeles earlier in the year versus later in the year. You know, you'd be surprised what these sophisticated models actually do. Um, but but the, the, what I described is the general method of, of, of how you correct uh, that. But uh, uh, my earlier question about whip, though, Mike, is you said that you don't look at whip, you look at the components. I would argue the other way. I would say whip is even more important to look at because whip takes into account a bunch of things. It takes into account the, the fact that strikeouts help it, the fact that walks hurt it, right? It's a good number that is all-encompassing, just like runs are for, for batters. I say I would value whip actually more. I no? guess it's mis it's hard to describe the way I feel. It's whip is the level of value that you say for those reasons, but I don't look at it because I'm confident that the metrics that I'm already looking at will result in a good whip. So if I'm prioritizing high strikeout guys, then I don't need to look at their whip because I expect that all those strikeouts and the fact that I'm, I think I'm drafting good pitchers will end up resulting in a good whip. So just looking at the whip won't necessarily tell me anything additional that I didn't already know by prioritizing high strikeout guys and guys that don't walk double-digit rates of batters. Right. I guess you're, you're basically saying that you're, you're, look, you're covering it by looking at the com- some of the Correct. components there. But uh, for most people, I think it is important to look at because if you're not going to do that big research to component you know, to put break down the components, it's something that you could track. And to me, whip is harder to manage in a fantasy league. So if you're fortifying your whip by good whip players, that's that's a really really great thing to do, and you can target them, right? ERA fluctuates more than whip, right? So you can manage your whip better. So, he, than ERA, so here's a good example of a guy I'm thinking of. So Kyle Hendricks, obviously, he was massively disappointing this year. Kyle Hendricks broke everything. No, no but the him. bottom line is Kyle Hendricks has, has posted a good whip every year, but he's a low strikeout guy. And although I somehow managed to, to roster him several for several years, and he's not the type of pitcher I generally like to roster. And even though he has a good whip, he's not a high strikeout guy. And so I would look at his whip and say, oh, I want him. But then if I look at his strikeout rate, I don't want him. And so what I'm doing is I'm prioritizing strikeout rate and saying, I want a high strikeout rate. I don't care what his projected whip is. Because I think with a low strikeout rate, the risk is higher that bad luck via BABIP or home run per fly ball can ruin his season. And, of course, this is backward-looking because we know that that's exactly what happened to Kyle Hendricks, and he lost even more strikeout ability. Right. But there's just greater risk with the low strikeout guys since they have lesser margin of error. And, and so I don't want to rely—I don't care if they have a good whip. I want to rely on the high strikeout guys and expect that the whip will be there in the end. And it looks like the Chicago Cubs don't listen to you because the other guy that comes to mind is Marcus Stroman who also is a low strikeout guy, and he tends to have a pretty good whip, looks like they say, hmm, we got Hendricks, let's double up on these types of guys and let's get Stroman. 
So that's interesting there. Um, now, we covered walk rate and strikeout rate in the hitter section. It's actually just the reverse of what's good and what's bad. But I want to get to swinging strike rate because a lot of times when I look into a pitcher and say, is he getting whiffs, you know, uh, swinging strike rate is one of the things I look at. Uh, what would be a, a regular swinging strike rate? What would be a, a good or a Yeah, so swinging strike rate, as you could expect, since strikeout rates themselves have continued to go up, swinging strike rate has continued to go up. Uh, in the olden days, it used to be if you're at a double, just a double digit, all I ask is a double digit rate. That's pretty good. That's no longer the case. The league average rate now is 11.3%. So what used to look good, let's say a 10.6, is actually below the league average. And it's actually been hard for me to get used to because I see like a 10.5. I'm like, all right, that's pretty good. It's not. It's well below league average. So you see guys... Yeah. So relievers, yeah. just because they generally pitch one inning, they usually, on average, have higher marks than starting pitchers. So from a starting pitcher, you'll get swinging strikes as high as 15 16%. But anything above, I would say, 12 13% is very good. And that is one of my top indicators, is the ability to get swinging strikes. Uh, this also goes for guys who are coming up from the minor leagues, if they're getting strikeouts in the minors, but the swinging strike rate isn't there, they're probably relying on call strikes and or foul strikes. In my non-scientific view, and just anecdotally what I've seen, if they're not getting the swinging strikes in the minors, that strikeout rate is not going to translate to the majors. So really, really pay attention to that swinging strike rate, even in the minors, as that's the most important metric I'm looking at when projecting strikeout rate in the future. Agree, agree. Can we look can we learn anything from swinging strike rate during spring training or uh, we would really? be able to if that was available. Uh, I don't maybe Statcast has that available. Um, I do use strikeout rate in spring training. However, swinging strike rate if that was available would be even better. Uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, I've definitely identified a bunch of breakout starting pitchers solely by looking at spring training strikeout rate. Yeah, a good question there. Luck statistics. We talked about BABIP in the hitter section, but there's another one that I look at, which is strand rate or uh, left-on-base percentage. Um, do you want to just explain to listeners what strand rate is and what to look for in terms of whether a pitcher is Yeah, so left-on-base percentage is essentially what it says. It's what percentage of base runners were left on and, and did not score when the inning ends. So if the inning ends and you stranded two base runners, then that gets into the, uh, what is it, the numerator? Um, yeah, that gets into the numerator. And that means that they stranded either uh, a high percentage of the, the base runners that they allowed or a low percentage. And it generally follows... Um, some of the other luck, luck metrics. So if you have a low BABIP, you're, that probably is going to increase your left on base percentage because if you really think about it, fewer hits on balls in play means that the hits that you do allow are more likely going to get stranded on base because you're allowing fewer hits. So a lot of these luck, luck metrics match up, not all the time, but oftentimes they do. And the league average has generally fluctuated between 72 and 73%. Every year, you'll see the league leaders, again, only talking about starting pitchers, the league leaders will be in the low 80s. Uh, that's generally not sustainable, 
but every year there's some other name or a group of names that are above 80%. Then you have the unlucky ones that are in the mid-60s, the mid to high 60s. So what's great about left on base percentage and focusing on that is that the majority of fantasy people, fantasy uh, owners and uh, articles, they don't look at left on base percentage and they don't talk about it. So if you get a guy who underperforms their ERA because of left on base percentage, then nobody will realize that that's why they underperformed and they might think that it was legit. Whereas you see, wow, it's a 65% left on base percentage, that's going to probably rise toward the league average. He's going to strand a, a lot more of his runners next year, so his ERA is going to drop. And so that'll give you an advantage when most people aren't really looking at that metric. Yeah, well, you say nobody, but of course, all the listeners to the Beat the Shift podcast are all well aware because we do talk about that statistic quite a bit here. So, uh, yeah, our our listeners are <laughs> That's informed, great, Mike. Because I, I, that is the one metric that I see least in articles. I see BABIP all the time. Everybody can recognize who has a high and a low BABIP, but I rarely ever see any mention of, whoa, he's holding a... He's stranding 85% of base runners. That's not going to last. That's rarely included in articles, but just as important as seeing a BABIP of 240. Right. Just one word about the luck statistics for pitchers, especially BABIP. If you see a low-ish BABIP for a pitcher, before you say that he's been unlucky, I would just check whether the team defense is good or not. Because if the team defense is poor and the runners are getting on base uh, much more than they would, so we're talking about a high Babbitt for pitchers. Um, it may be because of the defense. And, of course, going forward, if the pitcher doesn't get traded and he's playing for the same team, you're going to expect that higher Babbitt going forward. So unlucky should be relative to, I would say, a, quote, team's Babbitt, right? I'm just saying, don't just say, well, it's over 300, so he's unlucky. Just check first whether the team defense is the and culprit And adding to that... The pitcher's batted ball profile, and when I say batted ball profile, what I mean is ground ball rate, fly ball rate, line drive rate, pop-up rate, that also plays a big role. So in the past, we've seen some extreme fly ball pitchers that have run really low Babbitt marks. Uh, one of the guys I'm thinking of is Chris Young, and the projection systems every single year got him wrong because they regressed his Babbitt back to the league average. And it never happened. He'd post a 230, 240, 250 mark every year because he was an extreme fly ball pitcher. And fly balls go for a hit far less often than ground balls and line drives. So if you're allowing a high rate of fly balls, you're going to allow fewer hits on balls in play. So batted ball profile plays a big role in BABIP, and that's something to check uh, when trying to figure out whether that BABIP is lucky or not. Right. Good point. Uh, ERA estimators. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but um, on Vangraphs, we have a couple of them. Uh, FIP, X, FIP, Sierra, those are different statistics that are used. Those are X statistics, really, to say, well, you know, here's a formulaic way to say what the ERA should have been. Just to tell people it's not a predictive statistic. It doesn't tell you what they're going to have in the future. It tells you what they should have had if there was no luck or if, you know, if everything went right. Could you just quickly explain the difference between FIP, X, FIP, Sierra? Um, which of them are better descriptive, uh, you know, retrospective uh, testers? And are any of them or which one out of the three are more predictive? In yeah, your so estimate? first off, the three metrics were developed to be 
retrospective. They weren't meant to be predictive, but we'll get to that shortly. So remember that these are backwards-looking, quote-unquote, what, what should the pitcher's ERA actually be? FIP was the first one. It was the, the most simple. All it does, it takes the pitcher's walks, home runs, and strikeouts, throws them into the equation, and spits out what the ERA should be based solely on those three. But then XFIP came out based on the notion that, wait a second, home runs allowed isn't totally controlled by the pitcher. There's a lot of luck involved in home runs allowed. And so maybe we should kind of just ignore home run rate and give everybody the same home run rate. And so that's what XFIP does. And it normalizes home run rate. Uh, it, it basically assumes the same rate of home runs. And just fly balls of the... Uh, right, the exactly. It still takes the walks and the strikeouts that were actually recorded, but then it assumes essentially a league average home run rate. And Sierra takes it another step further. That's far more advanced than the XFIP and the FIP. Uh, it's a much more complex equation, and it accounts for ground ball rate, fly ball rate, the entire batted ball distribution, and... Basically what it's doing is it accounts for the fact that ground ball pitchers are more likely to induce double plays because they uh, induce more ground balls. And, and that's far more advanced than what XFIP and FIP is doing. And Sierra also is not assuming a league-wide home run rate, but it's looking at fly ball rate and basically ignoring what the actual home run rate is and really looking at the underlying skills. So, from all of the studies, Sierra has been the most predictive of rest-of-season ERA, even though it wasn't developed that way. And from a backwards-looking perspective, I believe it also correlates slightly higher with actual uh, ERA, but don't quote me on that. But for fantasy owners, you don't care what correlates better with past ERA. What you really want to do is what metric is going to tell, give me a better idea of the ERA for the rest of the season, and Sierra is the best, easily. All, all the metrics beat ERA itself, so you don't want to look at ERA to predict ERA for the rest of the year. So my go-to metric has always been Sierra. Uh, I'm not sure why it hasn't caught on, because it seems like FIP and XFIPs continue to reign supreme. And all my articles, all I ever talk about is Sierra, but it, it, it hasn't seemed to caught on, get caught on yet. It seems like I'm one of the only ones that still talk about Sierra. Yeah, I like Sierra, although I will say that um, if I like to look at the high FIP to ERA and XFIP to ERA outliers, and you do get pockets of good undervalued uh, from there. In fact, you'll get actually bigger differences in some of the FIP and XFIP names than you would from looking at Sierra versus ERA differences, if that makes sense. You know, like it'll bubble up to the top some people that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, uh, definitely looking at the gap between any of these estimators in ERA is – that's one of the, the best ways to come up with like a, a trade target list when you're, you're going shopping mid-season when you need pitching help. Uh, right. These are the guys that you might get for uh, undervalue. Ruven, let's go to you for the, for the uh, waiver wire question. Same question to you as before for the hitters. So for the, on the pitcher side, you, you know, come to your waiver wire week, you're making your bids. What are the couple statistics that you look at most when trying to know who to pick for your team? 
Well, I'm definitely looking at the K percentage. I look at actually K per nine. I want to see exactly how many strikeouts this pitcher is getting, especially when I'm looking at middle relievers or a, or a possible closer. If you look at the K per nine, a, a pitcher who has a high K per nine over a 10, they have a better chance of becoming a closer because that's just that's what the closer does. You start, they want to have high leverage situation where they strike people out. So I look for that. But same thing like for the for the batters. I'm looking for their role. I'm looking for how they're being used. I'm looking for the state of the rotation that they're being played in. If there's a six-man rotation, if there's a five-man rotation, if there are injuries, if there's a, guy, if there's a rookie that's going to be coming up soon, all these things play into which pitcher I want to get. But I, but for me, there's some things that I always want to have. I always want to have on my roster a middle reliever with a high K rate. And that's the main thing because in that way, if you do have any injuries, you can usually plug in that middle reliever and, and that solves the problem for at least that week. I'll just say there the, that I think K percentage is superior to K per nine because you can, you know, it, 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 you want to you want to find out strikeouts per batter, not just per inning. You can walk the farm, you know, and you still have a high. You know, Ariel, I'm glad you said that because I've written articles on that specifically, and uh, yeah. I was never sure if anybody actually read those articles and had that aha moment because it really it, it hasn't changed the behavior yes. of some writers that um, I'm thinking of right now, but. Yeah, the, the per-plate appearance metrics are far superior than the per-nine-inning metrics. And those per-nine-inning metrics should just be phased out so nobody can misuse them anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, I do read your articles. Uh, Mike, if, if people – I will say at the end, but Mike's articles are the first thing that comes out every morning from Monday through Thursday at Rotographs. That's definitely my uh, on-the-train or – well, my coffee, called my morning coffee uh, article of the day, uh, as it comes out at, uh, like, I think 8.15 every morning. Um, but anyways, um, I do use K per nine in my articles, but I do both. Uh, I interchange both, meaning sometimes I'll throw a K per nine, sometimes I'll throw a K percentage. The reason I do that is not because I think I know that K percentage is more superior, but for uh, to about phasing it out, some people are used to the numbers, right? If you hear a 11K per nine, you because you're old school, you might be more familiar with the number. So I try to do half and half so that the people can identify with that one and at the same time pick up what the next K percentage means. But I am going to be phasing this out as the industry in the whole should be phasing it out. It's far superior, right? Um, what about you, Mike? What are your... Uh, favorite yeah, stats so to look at. I'm also like reviewing with strikeout rate, but what I want to see, obviously strikeout percentage, I want to see the strikeout percentage driven by swinging strike rate. So I want to see both of them strong. I don't want to see a 30% strikeout rate, but a league average swinging strike percentage. I want to see a 30% strikeout rate with a 14% swinging strike percentage. If it's not driven by that swinging strike percentage, then I'm a little less confident that that strikeout rate could be sustained because that means that it's being driven by a combination of called strike rate and foul strike rate. And I just don't think those are as sustainable moving forward as swinging strike rate is. I'll give you one, a better one that I use instead. How about K minus BB? Uh, if I could pick only one statistic to look in season, and you say you got to base every single decision on a pitcher, and you're going to get one statistic, it's K minus BB because that incorporates both the upside and the downside, right? Of of the walking and the strikeouts. Um, that K minus BB actually stabilizes really, really quickly in a season. You can learn so much just from that statistic. Ariel, actually, my, my the, there's a specific reason why I don't focus on K-walk, and that's because I think walk rate in season is pretty volatile, 
and it has a lower numerator and so the lower numerator just means that it bounces around more and k minus walk obviously uh half of that percentage is is from walk percentage and so given that one of those rates is pretty volatile i just don't put as much stock because i want to weight the strikeout component more as i think it's more um it, it it's more of a skill whereas walk rate i think just fluctuates uh sometimes a pitcher can go through a, a rough patch where they're struggling with their control and then suddenly find it again so i i kind of want to discount it a bit especially early on I don't disagree, and strikeout is the more important percentage. Again, I, I look at more than just I, – I do look at strikeout rate, right? But if uh, if I had to pick one overall winner, and if I said only one, I think K minus BB incorporates both. I look at both K, and then I say, okay, is there – okay, here's a great strikeout guy. Is there a walk problem? Right? That's how I. That's how and, you want to look at it. Yeah. So I think K minus BB. And, and hey, it, in my fantasy, my AL-only keeper league, uh, I'll copy all of the free agents into Excel – I'll do a VLOOKUP, bring in their swinging strike rates, and then what do I calculate? Their K-walk rate. So I admit it. I do the same right. thing. But I, but I also of bring course. in that swinging strike rate because I think the swinging strike rate is probably number one, and then the K-walk is number two. Yeah, and if you want to drill down further, I think velocity increases if you see pitchers in the waiver wire and somehow you can determine that they've increased their velocity year over year. That's a great spot. The one thing I'd say when I'm looking for relief pitchers um, I'm looking for leverage. I'm looking for utilization. Um, in fact, I'll do this more manually than sorting. I'll go to um, any site that lists the last 14 days of usage, and I'll say, okay, who has been pitching the eighth inning? That's who I want to get on my roster because they're being put in high leverage situations. They're probably next in line. Utilization is something I looked at for relief pitchers because, remember, the game is is to do with saves, and maybe that's a good segue to um, to talk about saves. Ruvain, how are we dealing with, with save in 2022 in terms of statistics? How are you figuring out, based on statistics that you can find right now, who in the world to, to pick? Obviously, if a manager says, yep, this guy is, is the, the closer, that's the guy to take, but how else are you, are you dealing with it? And just to add to that, I know that for the Tigers, for example, Gregory Soto has been announced as the closer, right? They've already announced him. He's the closer. I really don't want to draft Gregory Soto because, first of all, I don't know how good the Tigers are going to be. But number two, the guy walks so many batters. I really don't want a guy with such a high whip. He's walking one, two batters every single outing on my team. I feel like, sure, the manager said he's the guy now, but will that walk rate really have him last the whole season? I don't know. Is there statistics that can maybe shore it up for you? Well, I'm looking at the at the K percentage. I'm looking at the walk percentage, just like you mentioned, because if they're in high leverage per, per, uh, situations in the ninth inning for saves, and they're walking the ballpark, they're not going to be the closer for much longer. So you have to look into that. Um, you look at the the job security. I mean, you you get the top you know the top guys. Kenley Jansen, he's been there forever. Whether he signs with the Dodgers, wherever he goes, he's going to be a closer. His K rate is his K percentage is not, has not been that great recently, but you know what? There are pitchers who get a lot of ground balls, and they're not the sexy relievers, but they're out there. And worst case scenario, you just buy the whole Rays bullpen. 
because they're always worth something in fantasy. They're not just striking out guys. They're having the ball button play, but they're also getting people out. And everyone is being mixed, mixed and matched into high-leverage situations. So when in doubt, go with any... That's my ale-only tell-war league strategy. Just buy the Rays bullpen. Yeah. In fact, we suggested that last year, saying that, you know, even though the Rays, you're not going to find a guy. There is no guy. But, you know, if, if you own, especially in mono leagues, if you own shares, uh, you know, two out of the three or three out of the four of the bullpen in, in uh, Tampa, you're going to get your share saves and you're going to get some really good quality relievers. So that's one strategy and probably in, and, and probably cheaper than going for some of the top guys and, you know, you're hoping that they stay out. Obviously, if you get a guy like Liam Hendricks, he's worth paying the extra buck for because he's the guy and he's good. Uh, but if you're going to just guess on a guy, why just guess on one guy and pay a lot because we think he's the guy? For the same price, you can buy two raised pitchers. That'll help all your ratio stats, and you'll get some percentage of saves, and you'll get some wins because they vulture a lot of wins as well. Um, Mike, any other statistics that we should talk about, uh, either for pitchers or hitters that you well, might look at? this isn't a statistic, but I, I just wanted to jump onto the – scouting for saves. So I think rather than look at the metrics and the bullpen first, uh, I think the best path forward is to identify bullpens where a guy is named, and Gregory Soto on the Tigers is actually a really good example. Identify a guy who has really shaky skills, who you don't think will last maybe even a month in the closer role, and instead seek out the highest skilled reliever in that bullpen and he'll be your cheap target especially in a mono league on the bet that he might eventually take over the closer role and even if he doesn't a guy who's giving you good ratios with a really good strikeout rate that might save a, a game or two here or there obviously as a reliever he can still win four or five games that still has value in AL only leagues and if you can draft him in a, a late round or get him for a buck in an auction he's going to earn more than that and he still has that chance of taking over the closer role if you did your research well and and you can collect a bunch of them and, and you can pick up a, a couple of guys behind that shaky named closer thinking that you're going to hit on at least one of those guys now the only thing i'll say though is to, to be worried is that it really depends on what team. And I think you're talking about teams where they're going to name a guy, it's going to be a one guy, and there you go. Because I'll tell you, I'll take, give you two examples that I think they're probably not a good bet to, to buy. David Bednar on the Pirates. I, I love David Bednar. We recommended getting him all year last year. but And he's clearly the best pitcher on the Pirates in the bullpen. But I'm not sure he gets save-offs. I think he might be just a high-leverage guy. I mean, look at last year after the trade deadline – it wasn't him getting the saves in the end of the year. It was Chris Stratton. I think they wanted David Bednar to go into the high leverage situations, and it might be a money thing. It might be it might be because you know saves add up to money when they go to arbitration and eventually down the line, and they certainly don't want to trade him, so they're keeping him away. And statistics say you should have your best pitcher in your high leverage situation. So. Bednar might be a guy to stay away from, even though he's a high-skilled guy, because he might not close. Same with uh, Camille Duval. I think in uh, San Francisco, um, maybe they go with the other names, the Rogers, McGee, whoever they have, and they use Duval in that some in in the uh, high-leverage situation. Really depends on in the Rays. Ugh. 
could be anybody. You know, it really depends on the team. I think more than anything, you need to know not just who the closer is and the next in line on teams. You have to almost classify every team as what are they doing. I know the Reds last year, the Reds, they said before the season, we're not going to have a, a set closer. We're going to have a committee. And they did that. They split their saves amongst a bunch of people. I think it really depends on what the team is. And I think it's worth for everybody in this offseason to classify at least what they think each team is going to do. Is it going to be one guy? Is it going to be committee? Is the best pitcher going to go in high leverage? I think that's actually more important. More if than only ever. we all had crystal balls. Sometimes it, it's definitely no. something yeah. that would be helpful, but it's hard to predict in advance which teams are going to just kind of coast with the same closer and which teams are going to give their best guys the high leverage situations and not going to care who actually collects the saves. Because sometimes that changes also during the season. And, and you think a, a team is going to just kind of go by committee, but then some reliever really sets himself apart the, the first couple of weeks and suddenly, oh, I guess they do have a de facto closer for the rest of the year. True. Anything can happen. In terms of other statistics, um, I'll look at some of the play discipline statistics like O contact, O swing, zone percentage, Z swing, that kind of thing. Um, again, uh, one of the reasons that I use the plate discipline metrics are because it breaks things down to the pitch level. You know, when you're talking about innings, a pitcher can pitch five innings in a game. That's five. You can't really learn anything from it. But in the five innings, he might throw 100 pitches. 100 is a much bigger number. After 10 games, that's 1,000 pitches. Statistics that go on the pitch level converge a lot faster. So you can actually tell whether the pitcher is inducing more contact out of the zone, getting less swings or more swings out of the zone from just a, a couple of games. I think after about five or seven games, it stabilizes. So uh, I like to look at the plate discipline metrics as well, particularly for pitchers. Yeah, I Anyone agree. Else? Those are the go deeper stats that help explain the results. And when I say the results, like strikeout rate. So you see a, a jump in strikeout rate, then you go to the plate discipline stats. You're like, oh, he's getting a lot more swings and misses outside the zone. That's why his strikeout rate is up. So then your next question is, well, what is he doing differently? Why is he getting more strikeouts? Uh, why is he getting more swings and misses or more swings outside the zone? Then you jump to the pitch mix and you see if there are any changes there. Then you go down to the plate discipline metrics of each of those pitches and see if there's a specific pitch that he's generating more outside of the zone swings. And, and then you just keep on going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Now, that doesn't tell you anything about whether he'll continue to do that, but it, at least it explains the performance that you've been seeing, which is the first step. Right, right. All right, anything else to add? Otherwise, we got an injury update from Ruvain. It's been a while. Yes, it has. And I want to preface this by saying that because of the lockout, there is going to be less injury news out there. Teams are putting less information out there. So whatever you can get, take it and run with it. So I'm going to start with Max Muncy. He said at the end of November that he isn't healing as quickly as anticipated. He had a torn UCL and a dislocated left elbow in October. He decided to go against surgery and doing the rest thing only. He may not be ready to start spring training. So just something is a situation to monitor. Ronald Acuna, multiple videos have come out of him hitting, which is great. He's hitting, he looks great, but we haven't seen him running yet. Once we see him running, they will have the full picture. I think he will be one of the top two or three picks he should be in this uh, in this year's next coming draft. DJ LeMahieu underwent 
sports hernia surgery in mid-October. He's expected to be ready for spring training. This may have affected some of his playing toward the end of the season. Alex Bregman also had a little swoon at the end of the last season. He had surgery for his right wrist in early November, which may explain it. He's supposed to resume baseball activities in the beginning of January, and he looks good so far to begin spring training on time. Jamison Tyon is also recovering from ankle surgery. He had it in late October, and all signs point to that he'll be ready to start when April comes around. Carlos Carrasco had surgery in mid-October to remove a bone fragment in his right elbow. We don't know how long this was going on for that, so it's possible that this was affecting his pitching, and maybe he would actually benefit from an opener because he didn't do well in the first innings. But I think that he should be perfectly fine for when spring training starts. And to Two players that we haven't heard much news from, which is neither neither good or bad, is Jacob deGrom and Clayton Kershaw. We haven't heard much from either of them, from either of their camps, which is not good, but it's not bad. It's just nothing. So don't take that for too much right now. Who worries you more, Kershaw or deGrom right now going to 2022? Kershaw because he has more innings on his arm. deGrom, even though they're almost the same age, deGrom has less innings on his arm and Kershaw has so many innings if you count the postseason that I'm a little bit more worried about him. Plus, he doesn't have a team right now, which is a little bit weird that the Dodgers didn't go and resign him right away. So there's some, there may be something there that the Dodgers are worried about. I think it's weird they didn't even know from a qualifying offer. Yeah, they, they didn't think he was worth the $18 million or something, that, which is a little bit insane thinking that a multiple Cy Young award winner is not worth And he's been a face it. of the franchise. Yeah. I mean, Clayton Kershaw has always been known as a stand-up guy and, and a face type of franchise face type of a guy. He's not just like a good pitcher that isn't really popular or something. I mean, Clayton Kershaw is is one of the big, big names in the, in the game, so it, it makes it even more surprising. Yeah, and he has a big connection to the area. I mean, his wife and him do so much charity around the area. Uh, I, I, I have to imagine he's going to sign back with the Dodgers, but presumably for a lot less than $18 million, which is probably why they didn't offer it to him. Uh, I, I can't see him signing anywhere else. I, I just I just can't. But, of course, anything can happen. Um, by can't, I mean 80% chance he signs with the Dodgers, you know. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Uh, I think it's always good to reset and get a feel for what statistics are, what's good, what's bad, what to look at. And hopefully we give given you a lot uh, of good information today. And many thanks to you, Mike, for, for doing the show. And uh, why don't you tell everybody where we can uh, read your stuff and where pod projections will sure. be available. So Monday through Thursday in the mornings, my articles get published on the Rotographs section of Fangraphs.com. And you could also find my pod projections and my ebook, Projecting X 2.0 How to Forecast Baseball Player Performance, which teaches you how to forecast players, teaches you all about my methodology, and even takes you through a tutorial of how to build your own projections on Excel. All of that can be found at projectingx.com. There you go. Ruvain, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where starting in January, I'm going to be tweeting out again updates on all the players to try to help you excel in your draft. I also have a weekly article during season on Rollerballer discussing all these injuries as well. All right, and I'm Ariel Cohen. You can read my work over at Rotographs, CBS Sportsline, Rotoballer. The ATC projections will be available on all those sites come the third week in January. A lot of people are asking, when are ATC projections out? The answer is the Thursday after Martin Luther King Jr. Day is always the day that I publish them. Why? Because, A, first of all, 
as I do aggregation, I have to wait for everybody else to publish theirs. Um, but, uh, you know, it takes me most of January and uh, then uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where I'm off from my regular job. That's my final check and off to the printing presses. So uh, third week, Thursday in January, ATC Projections will be available there. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. And, of course, you can listen to the Beat the Shift podcast, where I will appear every week right here on this channel. All right. Once again, thanks so much to Mike Podhorzer for guesting on this show tonight. And for all of you out there, have a great offseason. Get ready for your drafts. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.